please do. I'm sure um, Tracy wouldn't mind people afterwards catching up with you over, over things that you said. Thank you so much for sharing that. And let's just pray um, for you and uh, for our own understanding as we come to this part of God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work in Tracy's life that um, she just described. And we pray that you will protect and bless her and her family and uh, work in their hearts always to assure them of your love and your presence with them. And we pray for ourselves now as we apply ourselves to this part of uh, Micah, that you would speak to us and show us things that we need to know this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, friends, we need to talk about the J word, uh, judgment. God's judgment, the fact that God knows all about um, what we think and do and say, that he passes judgment on what is wrong and will enact his sentence. Now, you might say, do we really need to talk about that? Um, because Western society that we live in um, feels that it grew out of ideas like that a long time ago. What, ought the church just to move on a little bit? Well, many of you will know that our staple diet as a church is to preach through whole books of the Bible. Now, one of the reasons we do that, there are a number of reasons, but one of the reasons we do that is because it means that we can't avoid biblical topics that we might prefer to leave out. Like judgment, it has to be talked about because it's, it's there and uh, we, we can't avoid it. So this morning, God's judgment is quite bracing. It's a little bit uncomfortable, but it's quite refreshing as well. It's a little bit like uh, the, the, um, God's eternal fresh air blows into the kind of sweaty room of our present age and all its delusions. So... Our study of the prophet Micah, who's the, the prophet we're looking at at the moment, the biblical book we're studying, it requires us to talk about God's judgment, and not, God, not just God's judgment on the world out there, but God's judgment um, uh, on his own people at work among his own people. Now, last week, we saw with Andrew that um, how the Lord confronts his people like an accuser in court, and uh, he says to them, I've been so good to you, and, but you've forgotten my love. And they've turned religion into a kind of bargaining tool, um, thinking that they need to pay for what God has actually just given them already, his love and his presence. They think they've got to sort of pay for it through sacrificing lots of, lots of things. That's not right. And at the same time, they've neglected what God does want. What does he want? Well, here's the famous verse in Micah. It's probably the most famous verse in Micah. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with um, your God. But the thing is, this week's passage, well, it actually has two main sections, which we're going to explore in more detail later. The first section really is the rest of chapter 6, where the Lord confronts the people with reality, which is that they've actually acted unjustly that they've abandoned mercy and that they've walked in arrogance. And as a result, the Lord announces their fate. Judgment is coming. But then we get the second part of the reading, which is the first few verses of chapter 7, which is basically Micah going, oh, <laughs> is Micah lamenting, groaning in misery at the situation because it pains him as a faithful believer to see sin everywhere around him 
Um, and he, uh, plus, he knows that sooner or later, he's going to be caught up in God's judgment when it falls. So he laments, he grieves, he sighs before summoning his hope in God's salvation. And we'll come to that in a little while. But before we go into a bit more detail um, in our text, I just want us to stand back for a few minutes and think a bit more broadly about why God's judgment and talk of God's judgment is so uncomfortable and even so strange to us today in our, in our cultural time. Now, I've had enough fillings. That's a nice picture, isn't it? I've had enough fillings in my life to know. Do you, have, you know when you get the start of toothache? Maybe you're more righteous than I and don't get toothache. But uh, toothache, and you just think, well, if I just scrub a bit harder, it'll, it might be all right. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You have to go down and you have to have some drilling. And so I've had enough fillings to know that. I've also been a preacher for long enough to know that when you talk about judgment in church today, without drilling down into, into the way our minds have just been sort of formed by our culture, then actually you don't get anywhere. Uh, and that's why we're just going to explore some of the roots of our mindset and the way all of us have just been trained um, and raised to think. So a few hundred years ago, there were, people had no problem talking about God's judgment. Um, it came, slipped off the tongue easily, and perhaps they made it on it a bit too much, and part of the reason the, 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 the church in the recent centuries has moved away from talking about judgment is a pendulum swing in the other direction. You know, we don't want to talk about this. And so in that past world, preachers would have been very quick to pronounce God's judgment and to identify the events of history or the weather or um, daily life and to say, that's God's judgment. Well, uh, Cotton Mather, let me introduce you to him. There's a picture of him here. All I can say is that is one dramatic central parting. Um, Cotton Mather was, a, was one of the uh, great uh, Puritan theologians of the early Americas. Um, so the you know New England kind of um, kind of years in America, and um, seeing as we're talking about dentistry, let's talk about how Cotton Mather um, explained his toothache. He realised about it was about 1700. He realised he had toothache, and so he wrote in his diary, "Have I not sinned against my teeth? How? But sinful, graceless, excessive eating, and by sinful speech. That's how he explained his toothache." Really? Well, I think he would have had a hard time justifying that from the Bible. But on the other hand, what's interesting there, do you note just how closely personally involved he believed God was in his life? And also how responsible he understood himself to be before God. So in, in one sense, you sort of laugh at him and go, oh, come on, <laughs> get, over, get over yourself, get, that, get those eyes out of your own navel. But on the other hand, you think, no, there's something there. He knew that God knew everything, and he knew that he was responsible. Interesting, because both of those assumptions have changed massively since about 1700 in Western culture. And that's partly because ideas around, about God have changed dramatically. So we... Uh, Increasingly, God became seen as um, 
not always, but, it, but there was an increasing trend to see God in distant and quite impersonal terms. You know, God had sort of set the universe running by laws um, and, and that he didn't intervene in, though, in the running of the universe in any kind of personal way. So take all those things, you know, thunderbolts, um, lightning strikes, earthquakes, toothache, all the things that you might have, you know, in, in the past, might, people might have said, oh, that's God's judgment. Instead, they're saying, no, 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 science explains it all. You can explain it all by the cogs and the mechanisms and the, the, the bacteria and the blah, blah, blah that work out in the laws of nature, as it was became to be, to be known. Deeply ingrained in our, in our mindset. And the idea, then, of a personal God who takes an interest in the secrets of our hearts and the unseen words we speak, and, what's more, who can respond to them with joy or with anger, well, how childish. That's the, that's the, 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 the concept of, of God that has become um, uh, dominant. But then, it's not only ideas about God that have changed, ideas about human beings have changed as well. And um, again, there's no place for God's judgment in the new human outlook. New, as in the last sort of two, three hundred years. Because human beings have, are, are now, from, from that point, really essentially considered to be basically good. Deep down, good people... And our supreme responsibility is to be true to ourselves. Recognize that thought? Our supreme responsibility is to be authentically who we really are, to be our true selves. So in that case, our failings are no longer seen as sins against God, a God who has a right to condemn us. No, 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 they're the, they're the fault. They're, they're the, our failings are really to do with the systems and the, and, and the influence of others, the expectations of others, that are the sicknesses that hold us back from being our true selves. So uh, in that sort of new mindset, what's really needed is not forgiveness by God, but sort of healing and, and liberation to be our true selves. And, of course, you know, the part of that, we're very grateful for part of that. There are deep insights in that. But it's not the whole picture. West Side Story, um, lots of you will have seen West Side Story or will know it. Um, if you do know it, if you don't know it, go up later and look up the Officer, Officer Krupty song. Do any of you remember? Gee, Officer Krupty, da 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 Brilliant song. And, um, they, and basically, the, basically, the question is, Officer Krupke is the police officer, and he's trying to work out why, why the gang, the Jets, are such a bunch of delinquents. And, and all the different explanations are given as to why they're all so screwed up. And so um, they, they start out by saying, gee, Officer Krupke, I'm not going to sing it. Gee, Officer Krupke, we're really upset. We've never had the love that every child ought to get. We ain't no delinquents. We're misunderstood. Deep down inside us, there is good. That's the, the, the mindset. Mindset. That, and and, and in, that, in that way of looking at things, that really essentially everything that goes on and our problems are all basically other people's fault in preventing us from being who we really are supposed to be. So God's job in that kind of mindset is basically to, to help us become the best version of our good selves. He's the, the ultimate non-judgmental therapist who just says, oh, come on, let's just be you, just be you. Now, again, there are important insights in that, but it ain't the whole picture. It can't be. 
Well, that image of God has only gained strength since the 1960s, the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s, which had been brewing for a long, long time, um, but took this all much further. There's only one way to be guilty now, since that, that Cultural Revolution of the 60s. The only way to be guilty is to judge other people. Do you recognize that? The, the only thing that will be, not be tolerated is intolerance. That's the, the mindset now. So the, that, that leads us with a, with a question about God. The question is, how can God be good and judge people? Well, the answer, according to the, the, the name for it is relativist, relativist, contemporary relativist thinking, is he can't. He can't be good and judge people. That, that's today's common sense. Because he's either good, in which case he wouldn't dream of judging anybody's choices and condemning them, or if he does judge, he can't be good. So he either, he's either good or he judges. He can't be both. That's the, the, the contemporary mindset, including in the church often. So as a result, when we preach a book like Micah today, and we preach God's judgment today, when we point out that God does know the minute details of our lives, that he judges them, that he will pass a verdict on us, it, well, it either draws a blank, it just sort of water off a duck's back, or it sounds comically old-fashioned, or outright offensive. And most of us, um, including those of us who have been Christians for years, have breathed the air of our culture so deeply into our lives that if we ask ourselves the question, do I really believe that God will judge people who break his law? Which actually is every single one of us. I mean, we've all broken his law. And do we believe that? Or have we done what our culture has done, which is really to sort of shrink him down to the level of a kind of non-judgmental life coach? Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we lose some of the insights that have come with all of that. There's great insights that have come with that. I'm not suggesting that we lose those. I'm certainly not suggesting we go back to Cotton Mather and the kind of neurosis um, about his toothache. But neither was Cotton Mather completely wrong. Because according to biblical thinking, God does see and know everything we do. And we are accountable and responsible before him and ultimately before his judgment. See, so many of the assumptions that we make about God are actually just cultural rather than biblical. So it's actually bracing fresh air that blows across and into the room when someone like Micah corrects us. So let's see, let's get just into this text now a little bit. Briefly, I'm going to go through it. So remember I said there were two sections here. <clears throat> and in the first one, basically the Lord demonstrates that the people of Jerusalem have not acted justly um, at all. And we see immediately that the Lord knows the details. He has been in the market. You work in the city of London? He's there. He knows everything. Everything. Look, verses 10 to 11. Um, they're all about dodgy deals, basically. The Lord says, that, Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures and your short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? So an ephah is basically, it's a measure of 
used to measure out grade. And there were clearly some pretty dodgy practices going on. I don't know whether like, the, the, the measuring scoop had a kind of false bottom in it, so it looked like it was a ether, but in fact it was less. I don't know exactly how it worked, but basically they were, they were conning people. And the Lord knew. He knew it all. Verse 12, he knew the violent ways of the rich, which the rich tend to hide. He knows the lies that are told. And that means he hears what's said. He knows. Um, he knows that they're behaving exactly like two former kings of the northern part of Israel. Verse 16, he mentions a couple of them. He says, look, you people of Jerusalem, you've observed the statutes of King Omri and the practice of, practices of King Ahab's house. Because these kings um, had corrupted true worship. They'd brought idols into the land. They corrupted public life. They'd fostered violence and injustice. So in other words, this is not some distant God who is confronting Jerusalem. This is, the Lord knows all the grubby details, the lot. And he, he still does. The lie I told, you told, the ungodly sexual act I thought about or fantasized about or engaged in, the aggression that I showed, he knows it. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And he does care. It does matter. And deep down, I think we know it does. But it does matter. Now, I don't want anyone to mishear um, what we're about to explore. Because the reality is that nobody loves us more than God does. He does know who he made us to be. And he is at work to make us into that person but he does not make us into that person by indulging us in our sin. He does it by challenging us and calling us to turn, to repent. And his people in Micah's day were going to experience him disciplining them in a very direct way. Verse 9, heed the rod, he says, and the one who appointed it. In other words, he says, pay attention and learn from what is about to hit you. And verses 13 and 14 then describe the situation that is soon going to hit them. Empty stomachs as the enemies come in and consume their harvest at the point of the sword. Again, verse, second half of verse 16 um, sums it up right at the end of chapter 6. He says, therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. Now, as it happens, the people, there were some people listening to Micah. We know that from reading the prophet Jeremiah, who prophesied a couple of generations later, three generations later. Um, it's clear that actually they did repent. They heard what Micah said. They did turn under a king called Hezekiah. And Jerusalem was spared from being destroyed by the Assyrian army. But it was only a delaying of the judgment that Micah pronounces here. Because a few decades later, Babylon arrived. In 587 BC, entered the gates of Jerusalem and raised it to the ground. So the Lord is involved. He cares and he will come in judgment. Now this is Micah's message in his day. And it has to be said that in these Old Testament days, the judgments often fall in a more visible, immediate way than they do in New Testament times. 
But the same principle does stand today. Perhaps you know that quote from Thomas Jefferson, one of the American founding fathers. He said, I tremble for my country when I remember, when I reflect that God is just. God's right. I tremble for the church. I tremble for ourselves when we reflect that God is just. See, we can apply that principle to ourselves and our church. Our own thoughts, our words and deeds are known, and they do not measure up. So the biggest threat a human being faces is the judgment of God against them, against us. And the thing is, until we grasp that, we're living in a fantasy land. That's the truth. Now, that's the first part of our passage this morning. Second part is Micah's great sigh of distress at the situation. So chapter 7, verse 1, Oh, what misery is mine! I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard, but there's no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. Now, Micah is a godly man, and he's among a people under judgment, and it pains him. He feels alone, verse 2. He feels as though the godly have been swept away. There's violence. Verse 3, corruption is rife among the leaders. Verse 4, I think this is a brilliant image. He says, the best people in the land are no better than prickly bushes. That's the situation we're in, he says. And worst of all, and, and, and even the place where, where we should be at peace, there's strife and betrayal. The home. Verse 6, a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, and so on. And worst of all, Micah knows that the judgment he announced is inevitably on his way. Second half of verse 4. He says, the day of your watchman has come. That is, the day the prophets predicted. The day when God visits you. Now is the time of their confusion. Micah's devastated because he knows that he's going to be caught up in the calamity too. Part of a people under judgment. You know, actually, it's very depressing. And Sometimes it's good to say it as it is. There's a kind of um, Christian outlook, approach to, among, to life among uh, some Christians that basically tries to deny when things are difficult. Difficulties are all, always sort of positively spun. It's an opportunity. Well, is that, yes, that's true. But Micah, along with all the other prophets, laments difficulties and gives his distress time and space before the Lord and actually pours it out. Very healthy to do sometimes. But thankfully that's not where he stops. Oh, it's a brighter screen. He doesn't, that's not where he stops. The lament begins in verse 1 and it's transformed. And to the second half of the chapter, it's a celebration of the most extraordinary hope that Adam will talk about next week. So the hinge, <clears throat> there's a hinge in this chapter, it's on the, the whole thing turns on verse 7. Just look at that, because that's where we're going to leave things in a couple of minutes. Um, and it's here that we find the answer to God's judgment, namely, God's salvation. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord, says Micah. I wait for God my Saviour. My God will hear me. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. The Lord has announced judgment. Micah says, I'll wait for 
God, my Savior. See, Micah knows that the true God is just and that he judges. But he also knows that the very same God is love, just as Tracy was saying a moment ago. And that he saves. That's his heart. He, Micah knows that, as, as one of the New Testament writers, James, puts it, mercy triumphs over judgment for all who hope in, wait for, and trust in the God of Israel. And we've already, we saw a week or two ago in Micah, he's already prophesied where salvation is going to come from. Do you remember chapter 5, if you were here a couple of weeks ago? Chapter 5, the child of Bethlehem will bring salvation, will bring peace to his people. Jesus, the one for whom Micah waited in hope. Well, we don't need to wait. He's come. And he does bring peace. Peace in relation to God's judgment. So, look, it's true, we are damaged people. And in many senses, we do need healing. But if our biggest problem is actually we're under God's judgment, but in our natural state, um, and that God will enact that sentence, what we actually need more than anything else is his forgiveness. We need, what we need more than anything else is we need the one who has the right to condemn us to reverse his verdict and instead to justify us and to say, you have no case to answer. You are forgiven. You are free. And that is what God has done through Jesus Christ. When, according to God's plan, Jesus took on himself the judgment that we deserve in order to remove it from us forever. God's got a final J word. Judgment is not the final J word. There's another one, Jesus. You know the word Jesus? You know what it means? Many of you do. Some of you don't. Let this be a wonderful discovery. The name Jesus means saviour. The Lord saves. And we don't need to wait for him as Micah had to because we've seen what he did in his death. And we'll eat and drink later in a few minutes um, to remind ourselves of all that he did in his death. We can ask him right now um, to come into our lives. So Tracy was talking earlier on about going through church for many, many years. <clears throat> there comes a point when you say, no, I'm, I'm opening up to yes, to Jesus. I need to be forgiven too. I need to be set right in God's eyes. I need the judgment removed from me. Ask him. If you've never done it, ask him. And he will. Ask him in. Others of us, of course, have done that years ago. And, but we need the reassurance of it again. Jesus the Savior. God's final J word. Jesus has done this for us. And so now many of us, let's turn to him in faith and hope, asking that he will fill us now with his reassurance. Heavenly Father, we've talked about dark things this morning, judgment. It's not something I enjoy speaking about. And yet it is there and it's true. We thank you, though, that it gives a platform to understand Jesus and his great love, his self-sacrifice in the cross and the removal of your sentence against us through him. And we pray now that we would know this reassurance, all of us, 
as we trust in Christ alone, the Saviour. By the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus, Amen.